We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Peter Goodburn, founding partner of WaveTrack International. Peter, thanks for joining me again today. How are you? Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Tom. It's been a while, so um, I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. You know, it has it has been a little while, but it's always great to to catch up. You know, we had a good chat before we hit record here this morning. I guess this morning for me, this afternoon for you. But, you know, Peter, the last time we spoke, you explained to us your view on the commodity super cycle that began from the Great Depression lows. So with that as a backdrop, can you explain to our listeners a bit more about your commodity super cycle theory and how you see it playing out? Yeah, that's good. Um, Well, I think that um, when we talk about a commodity super cycle, and a lot of people are talking about it again, um, it's a very topical subject. Um, generally speaking, how do we define a commodity supercycle? Well, I think we have to look at it from a historical perspective. Um, probably, if we take very long-term data, and we might we might look at, um, let's take maybe I could. Uh, is it possible I could show my screen at the moment? Yeah, of course. Um, maybe I just get a ready um, with um, um, a very long-term chart um, on uh, the CRB index, for example. Um, we're going to have to go back a bit in time to do that. Um, what I'm going to show you is, um, okay, but um, this is a very long-term um, commodity cycle. This is actually the um, Bloomberg Commodity Index, which is extrapolated originally from data from um, Richard Mogi, who was a past uh, chairman of um, the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. And this data, um, we can see going back to the Great Depression uh, lows. Now, you can see there's a big correction down into 1932-1933. So this is very similar to what happened during the stock market sell-off in Wall Street back then. And technically, um, this is a commodity super cycle. And we're not really talking about a commodity super cycle in more latter-day periods like now or post-financial um, crisis or even post-pandemic. Um, Really, we've got to look at decades long of commodity super cycle. And this one certainly um, fulfills that criteria, going back to the Great Depression. It's a very typical um, Elliott wave, five wave pattern. Now, for anybody watching or listening in, um, Elliott wave is a model of um, price progression. We tend to sort of um, define it where progress in any one direction and it's probably easier for everybody to conceptualize this in an uptrend. Um, it evolves generally into five price swings or five waves. And once that five wave pattern has been identified as completed, there has to be a balancing three wave correction in the opposite direction. So here we have a typical five wave advance from 1933's low, one, two. So this moves into the 1960s. Three gets launched up into the late 70s, early 80s. So that was gold's initial all-time high back then as well. Wave four, uh, this brings us back into the late 90s when silver was bottoming, gold, um, 194. And then we see this big sweep to the upside, which is pre-financial crisis. It goes into the highs in 2008 at 233 on this index. It's the same for the Thomson Reuters um, CRB index as well, or any of the old cash indices that we looked at at the time. There's various different uh, commodity indices we can look at. But this is um, the defining nature of the commodity super cycle. So if you're really reading about commodity super cycles in, in news and media today, this is not really what it is. Um, we're in actually... Um, from the larger perspective, looking from a great height, looking down at these long-term patterns, um, we're looking at actually a counter-trend phase, which can then, again, last a decade or two, and, um, and maybe three decades in, in its own concept, because we're talking about the peak in 2008. We've already seen the beginning of this correction down with a big drop 
back here down to 60-50. So we've already gone from 233 to 60-50, huge percentage drop into the pandemic low. And the pandemic low um, was a lower low for oil prices. If you remember, oil prices collapsed from about uh, 140 down to, well, we got down to $650 on WTI on that forward contract. And if anybody remembers trading it at the time, the front month even went down to minus 40. So that was a bit of an extraordinary situation. But um, that was only the first phase of a, a three pricing event, which is going to last decades. And the, the following upswing from the from the pandemic low in things like oil, or you can look at copper prices from the financial crisis lows in October 2008. Um, they got a slightly different rhythm, but in effect, the same type of sequencing. They're rallying higher in a secondary phase, um, which is um, part of the regression period of the long-term super cycle ending in 2008. And this secondary phase where prices rise, I termed about 10 or 12 years ago as the inflation pop cycle. Mm -hmm. So it's not a super a commodity super cycle per se, by definition. Um, this is very much misunderstood. It's basically a, a, an inflation pop cycle because we're going to get bouts of um, inflation coming back in. Now, why do we know that? Well, we could also take a check on long-term interest rates because long-term interest rates topped out in 1981. That was the last big inflationary cycle peak. And we've been in a deflationary cycle for 35 years or more since then. And um, actually, there's a there's a 60 year cycle on interest rates. It should have bottomed um, basically around 2001, but it's been ex extended right the way through um, to basically pandemic lows. So in 2020, uh, due to intervention by central banks. Uh, and because of the, the financial crisis, uh, that sell off, basically the central banks came in with quantitative easing, cut interest rates and so on. And they perpetuated that rather than them neutralizing interest rates whilst the stock market and commodity markets were rising post financial crisis. They they chose to keep the taps running. And um, and that's produced, you know, this huge imbalance in printing money to such an extent that assets are still basically trending higher. And um, we've still got a lot of upside to come in the next two to three years on commodities overall. It depends on what we're looking at, but um, overall, um, we can see big gains in things like oil um, in this uh, secondary phase. Um, oil prices should actually even break above new record highs. Um, things like um, Copper will probably make new record highs as well. So in the next two to three years, you'll probably get a, um, you'll probably see headline news that copper is in a super cycle bull market because it's broken into new record highs. It's a bit of a bear trap, to be honest. Um, this particular index, um, it starts moving up in the inflation pop cycle, and it's it's itself composed in a fractal three price swing event, and it's rather rather sort of um, geared to oil where it goes up into this um, uh, April 22 high. It's currently pulling back. So oil prices are currently under pressure pulling back in the second phase, and that will continue this year. And then once we finish this year, a decline in things like oil and copper prices, well then in 2020, 2025, 2026 and 2027, these uh, three years, we're gonna, get, we're gonna get basically this big push up into new records. This one, I don't think will quite make it. I think it will get close to the old um, peak, which is the, the super cycle peak in commodities here. Um, if I take a look at um, um, a different index, we, I think we've got the um, Reuters Jeffries index. This one, I think, will make a new record high. Um, and the reason for that is because when we started hitting the lows in the pandemic, and this um, this particular Thomson Reuters CRB uh, index uh, rallied up to 329. Um, proportionally, it did a lot. It, it recovered uh, most of the ground a lot higher than the preceding decline that began from the uh, orthodox peak here. So, if we do our Fibonacci measurements on this, 
um, we, we arrive at 682. And I think that will, you know, obviously represent more oil rather than the Bloomberg Commodity Index. But overall, these commodity cycles are very important to understand because um, if you start getting raptured into this idea that we're in a commodity super cycle, which lasts decades generally in that terminology, that's not going to be the case. At some stage, we're going to confront with um, new record highs, but they're going to be a bit of a bear trap. You know, you need to be very aware that these things will run aground at some point and then they will collapse afterwards. So you want to be well out of these commodities. And generally, of course, like always, um, the markets will be, the sentiment will be most bullish at the extreme top. And that's something which um, a lot of um, uh, investors will have to get attuned into because, you know, it's natural for you to feel very, very bullish at the top of the market and very, very bearish and afraid at the bottom of the market. But in trading and investing in this way, especially these big volatile movements and these trends that develop, you've got to be really um, thinking more a bit like Warren Buffett. So at the financial crisis sell off, what did he do? He said, well, there's blood on the streets. We're buying. You know, we're going to we're going to we're going to buy Goldman Sachs A shares and we're going to start buying these investment banks because they're the they're the ones that have been hardest hit. They relative terms historically look cheap. We're not afraid of buying at these types of points of lows. OK, you need some idea of when the lows are coming. So you've got to have some methodology to determine that. Uh, this is why I think Elliott Wave is such a great forward looking vehicle and methodology to to work with, because it's not only precision in terms of the pattern sequence. So we talk about that pattern as a qualitative process, but also we can measure these patterns within a high degree of certainty about how they should develop from a qualitative process, um, uh, sorry, from a quantitative process using the Fibonacci sequence. And when we take a look at something like this over different time periods, um, and we can put it through different degrees of trend and the measurements. It really gets quite exciting because when you get a convergence of, of uh, Fibonacci ratios according to the pattern sequence and they come together, you have a pretty good idea where it's going to. So I'm just extending this initial sequence up from the pandemic by a, a Fibonacci 61.8 golden ratio here. And... Um, and that becomes wave B of a larger pattern, which we def we defer as a, um, an expanding flat pattern. And the B wave, the second sequence, which is this inflation pop, should ordinarily extend um, by this preceding uh, decline by 23%, a Fibonacci 23%. And you can see they exactly overlay here. That's not a coincidence. So when we apply these um, things together, you have a pretty good idea of an excellent map or a route, a navigator route to to see exactly how things will progress in the future. So we we're not guessing here. This is very mathematical. It's it's very precise, and um, it gives us a very clear outlook about what to expect. Well, I think the I think probably the important takeaways from this is, as you say, this isn't something that is going to last several decades. The way that you have this laid out. And this is also an exponential chart. Am I am I correct? Um, yes, I mean um, it's basically exponential in as much that it rises and then falls back down. So you get this um, parabolic curve. Mm -hmm. But I'm but saying yet, just just the way that we're looking at it, that price mm -hmm. move could actually be would look a lot more dramatic on a linear chart, right? Uh, yeah, of course it would. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, this is logarithmic. Mm -hmm. um, right. I think, um, yeah, these measurements, if I actually if I actually um, put this into uh, linear scale rather than log, mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't quite get you wouldn't certainly get the, the same co coalescence in the Fibonacci uh, measurements. And it would look very different. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, um, you're, you're going to get a different scaling here. I mean, this would this advance if it does go to where we think it should, which is all the way up here to this um, level at uh, 682. That movement's going to look. It's going to dwarf this one. Yeah, that's that's use. that's just the only point I wanted to make is yeah. just for those looking at at that chart. It's actually a, a lot more of a dramatic looking mm -hmm. move if you're not used to looking at that chart. A log scale log yeah. scale charts. Yeah, and that's 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 good point. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it would it would. Yeah, I mean that in itself 
I mean, okay, if you say, well, um, a super cycle commodity uh, bull market is uh, depicted by a percentage move, for example. But I think, um, you know, you've got to think about commodity super cycles over periods of time um, and the vast amounts of time that's unfolded rather than just uh, movements. I mean, we talk about secular bull trends in stock markets, don't we? And um, and I think that um, to a large extent, people think of a secular bull market lasting, you know, a decade or so. We go back to the financial crisis lows for that. And I think that's um, good. But really, if you want to take a look at something like the stock market um, as a secular bull trend, yeah, okay, secular, meaning time uh, inference to that. But if we go back into a very, very long time, long term charts, um, I'm going to take a look at um, this is the this is the Dow Jones with the foundation's long term averages going back to the uh, 1600s here. I mean, this entire movement up, you know, is um, a long term secular, well, secular bull. It's not a secular bull trend. It's basically a, a super cycle. Um, you know, we're going back to here's the Great Depression lows, but you can see now we're going back to lows that predate that, back to sort of 1842, back to 1782, um, and you can see, you know, where these big long-term 94-year cycles. So they're they're sort of generational cycles, really. You know, one generation. I'd like to think we can all live to 94. That would be good, but um, but you know, in terms of a of a lifespan, that's about one lifespan, isn't it? If you're lucky. So yeah, we gotta we gotta separate those things out. Um, most of the stock markets are really in those secular bull uptrends. I mean, if you take a look at um, the movement up from the uh, say the stock market, for example, um, the S and P five hundred from the financial crisis lows, um, you're going to get um, let's have a look here, something like this going on. So here's the financial crisis lows. And this is still actually unfolding, unlike the commodity markets, which have got their orthodox secular bull uptrends or their super cycle uptrends finishing in 2008, pre-financial crisis. This is still running up in its, um, its major uptrend. Its long-term uptrend is still in play. And we've got a few rather sort of volatile expectations for uh, this coming year. I mean, I'm I'm still thinking that we're going to get a very strong decline this year in stock markets. Some of them could be as much as 30 to 40 percent down. I think we need that because um, when we take a look at, um, say, the example of the S&P 500, and we go and look at, here's a weekly chart now from the pandemic low. One of the key signatures of um, the post-pandemic advance is the fact that when we started to lift higher, um, we've unfolded into three waves into this um, January 22 high. I've just extended the initial swing by Fibonacci 61.8 ratio. I've not quite measured it properly, but it's about right on this 4800 uh, area. And, um, and that three price swing event means that we're in a diagonal. The diagonal means that we've got to have a deep second wave before we can go higher. So we've got a bit of a, a risk this year that we could start to collapse lower. Um, I think there's an evident risk in that play. And that's also very evoked in um, the way that commodities are working. So if we go to oil and you take a look at the oil price, um, we need to see oil prices uh, drop down um, to slightly below $50 before we head up again mm -hmm. to new record highs. We've got to, we've got to see... Uh, oil prices down to, yeah, I think probably something like $48, $49, uh, which is a, a pretty big call because we have been declining already um, since that March uh, 22 high here at 130. But we need to, we need, you see, to go through this regression phase because the post-pandemic advance, we've got a neat and tidy five-wave pattern. Um, this one's a bit exaggerated because of that 650 low. Um, if we take a look at, um, for example, something like Brent um, oil, it's less exaggerated. Um, I think we've got, this is a monthly chart. Uh, maybe go to, a, yeah, this weekly chart's good. You can see that it's less, it's less accentuated at that low, at the pandemic low, and you've got a rather neat and tidy five-way pattern. This needs to get down 
you know, so WTI getting slightly below 50, um, Brent uh, finishing around $54. Um, so this year is going to be a bit of a down year, I think. Um, and that's also, you know, evoked right the way through the, the commodity complex. The only exception being things like gold and, and silver and platinum and palladium, things like that are very bullish, actually. Peter, before we get there, can we just think about, you know, what this commodity super cycle what crude oil, you know, these inputs, how that drives inflation and if we've seen the top for inflation? Well, I think um, the inflation measure, um, I think probably one of the best ways, I mean, we've got CPI, we can look at CPI measures. Um, and we have got very long term data on CPI. Mm-hmm. Um, but and we've got that going back to the Great Depression lows. But um, it's very difficult to see an overlay. I think the best expression of inflation is really coming through on the interest rate scale. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things is that, the, as I mentioned before, the, the interest rate, uh, the preceding infra- interest rate um, um, and inflation cycle was in the late 70s. So when Bretton Woods disbanded, Bretton Woods went, we basically opened the floodgates to printing money. And that's when we started to see the more money you have in circulation, of course, you know, the more the more that uh, the value of goods has to rise. And this itself causes, you know, constant price rises like that feeds through into inflation pressures. Well, interest rates bottomed at the pandemic. Um, If we go and look at a a long term 10 year Treasury yield. um, Probably have a look at that. you can see here's the here's the old high in 1981. Here's the low, pandemic low, and we've done we've done a huge um, recovery since then. But that's not going to be the end of inflation by any stretch. We'll go through a regression period, and we can argue whether that's begun in October um, and is moving down yields already, or whether or not, for example, we could have one more flip to the upside, which I think is a risk that will be assessing in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. Um, it's just because um, wage growth is um, is on the rise at the moment, which is adding a little bit of a flip higher for inflation. And um, I, while I'm on the subject, I've got this one template, which uh, comes from Bank of America, courtesy of them. Thank you very much, guys. And this is um, um, a really interesting chart because it's um, coming from their fund manager survey. And they say, well, um, 62% of the fund managers expect um, lower yields uh, during the next 12 months. And that's quite a big statement. We know that there's been a lot of pricing in of rate cuts from the Fed um, um, since the last um, um, Fed meeting in December. But this is quite an amazing figure. And basically, this is a very contrarian indicator. That actually rates won't decline as the Fed, as the as the fund managers expect, mm-hmm. because if it's, you go back to this, you can the, see that we're the highest ever, right? Yeah, and this is the highest ever since their data began, and you can see that um, we're like a standard deviation over and above where we would normally peak. If you go back to around this period, which is um, at the bottom of the um, towards the end of the financial crisis lows. You can see that then eventually um, this data set starts to dwindle. Um, and, and funny enough, if you go back to November, December 08, the 10-year Treasury yield actually rallied from 2% to 4%. It actually went up. So this is a bit of a contrarian warning sign that if you've got everybody crowding one side of the expectation, as always, we start looking at these extremes from a contrarian point of view. The opposite normally translates itself through. So rather than seeing lower interest rates this year over the next 12 months, as the, as the survey suggests, the dominating theory, it sounds as if that we're going to see higher interest rates um, over the next 12 months period. So that's why um, I think there's still I think we'll be able to determine whether that's the case in the next um in the next couple of weeks or more, because we've got a little bit of a rally coming through in the 10-year Treasury yields at the moment. And there's some resistance at 4.3% for those that are listening. And um, if it hits that number and 
turns down, then I think we're okay. Yields will keep dropping. But if they start to stretch their legs above 4.3%, then I think we could be looking at something like 569 later this year, which will be a very, very harsh um, outcome. Not because the market so engineered itself into expecting, you know, a continuous stream of rate cuts. Mm-hmm. And um, that will be quite devastating for commodities. It might even be the trigger point for the, you know, the stock markets to drop, you know, this 30, 40% period as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interest rates are very sensitive. But but overall, this is not the end of the inflation period because, you know, we've had 35 years plus downwards and interest rates are a good are a good mechanism to understand where inflation is going in the future. So even though um, there will be a regression point for a year or more, um, we're going to see another big pickup as we move towards the end of the decade. There's going to be another big surge of interest rate rises, and that's going to mean inflation rises too. So this is not the end of the inflation period. Uh, this is not some pop. The other thing is for those tuning in with um, with a little bit of knowledge on Elliott Wave, if, again, if we have five waves up, from the pandemic low to these current levels that we're seeing at the moment, which is evident in the shorter term charts. Um, That means that um, you're guaranteed after a correction, another five wave advance afterwards of equal amplitude or thereabouts. So, so yes, we're definitely going to see a lot more in the future, um, but that's probably two years hence, you know, that that begins that next phase. In between that, we've got this year where there's a tendency for yields to remain higher for longer and dropping down perhaps later um, uh, and a bit into maybe 2025. But after that, you know, um, when we get to the end of 25 and into 26, 27, then yields could start to turn up again. And that's where the next inflation comes through. So we're not in any scale of event we've got to look at this from a very very long-term perspective in order to gauge what what inflation is going to be doing down the road mm-hmm. peter when we think about you know what rates are going to do how much of that can we break apart from the part that the fed has control over and the other piece that the market actually has control over? well i mean ultimately um I used to be I used to be an ad, advert um, believer that um, the Fed and other other organisations, which you know, like OPEC, you could consider a cartel, uh, they try and influence price, but they can't really circumnavigate the um, uh, the rhythms that are are unfolding. They can maybe amplify them, um, but they can't really change the directions of them. Um, I think in this particular case with the 30, 35 year cycle in the um, interest rates, definitely the Fed have influenced the longevity of that cycle. And that's why you've got such an exponential rise here. It's not sort of like a a rise which has taken a decade and gone like something like that Mm -hmm. and a flat line to get up here. It's gone pretty vertical, pretty exponential. And the reason for that is because if you're pressing down hard on a spring, um, which is basically what the Fed have done with interest rates. Um, as soon as you let go, um, as soon as the dynamics change, and something like the pandemic has caused inflation pressures, um, we, we know all about uh, the blockages of uh, the uh, flow of goods and services and so on, that that disrupted um, the normal flow, then suddenly that spring is going to go vertical. And that's generally what happens in any situation where you're manipulating. Another opposite um, look at that manipulation was the one which I, I always think about uh, very much, I suppose, is the last time we saw really big commodity prices being influenced and manipulated was um, gold and silver during Bunker Hunt's um, period. The, the Hunt brothers were active in the late 70s. They saw inflation picking up after Bretton Woods. Uh, they got um, The Hunt brothers were big um sort of um oil um uh, they run a big oil company in the states they had, they were they were the latter day billionaires and um they saw that inflation was going to eat away at their money so they decided to buy first gold but then the central banks had vast hordes of gold so you can't really control that so they got together with the royal family in uh, saudi arabia 
and they decided to buy silver. And um, of course, that sent silver from one dollar fifty up to fifty dollars in in no time, in just several years. So the we'd never seen anything like that before, anything in history, not to that extent. And that was a great manipulation, but of course it ended in tears because um, eventually, in order to control um, silver, they not only had to buy several mines, but they had to buy the futures market. And of course the, um, the deposits to hold a futures contract were going up and up and up. Henry Jarecki was on the opposite side of them. Um, he was the chairman of uh, Makata, Goldsmith at the time, which was the U.S. Um, arm of uh, the uh, bullion dealers, and he was um, a, a very outspoken critic of what the manipulators of the Hunt brothers were doing, and um, and eventually um, they raised the the Hunt brothers were were buying futures and they raised the deposits on the Comex exchange so much that eventually it broke. Their backs, they didn't have enough money to, to maintain the positions. And then, of course, it was a collapse. So, whenever you get to these extreme manipulations and you get exponential rises, you often get exponential falls. Um, and so, you end up with the normal parabolic. But this is what's happened here. Um, and that's why, you know, ultimately um, it all ends, you know, and you get these abrupt sort of turnarounds, U turns, just like the pandemic when the stock market was dropping down. Or oil was dropping down. You then get a V-shaped recovery to the upside. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that's uh, that's always going to be the case. But no, inflation's not dead here, and um, it's going to be something that we have to we have to consider. You know, sometime down the road mm -hmm. again. Peter, I'd like to wrap up just another, or let's say, put a bow on another subject that you had here. We talked about some of the U.S. indices. Is this not just a U.S. focused? crash is this does this affect europe does this affect china you know does this affect more of the world as well well definitely yes i mean we're not talking about a local localized phenomena here we're talking about a, a global sort of meltdown mm -hmm. um i mean one of the things which is very interesting is that um and we can take a look at maybe europe for example um so the the uh, the s&p 500 just to remind everybody um um, we'll just have a quick a quick glancing look, and then I'll switch to Europe so you can compare the very different things. Um, the um, the the uptrend in uh, the S and P is this secular bull uptrend defined by five wave sequence. So we're going up to seven thousand for the S and P, but um, so we're going way above the the old financial crisis um, highs here, way above, and we have done. And we've got still more to do. Again, this is log scale, so you know this is. Uh, it doesn't look as if there's much room to go, but that's a that's a big, big movement, especially if we do get a sell off this year. Um, on the other hand, if we take a look at Europe, um, and we look at the um, Eurostox 50, we can see a very different thing going on. Um, here is the orthodox top of its long-term bull market. So this is a bit like the CRB index that we started with today. Got a very long-term uptrend finishing here. So this is um, actually the dot-com high. And this swing down was the beginning of a very long-term correction, three price swings. Uh, again, we saw three price swings down for oil prices. They bottomed in 2020. At the pandemic low, this one bottomed a lot earlier at the financial crisis sell-off low, but still three price swings all the same. The recovery point is a very overlapping pattern. It's not like the S&P, which has almost like a vertical ascent in its bull market, its com composition of five waves, which is defining that sort of uh, expensive uptrend. This one is a rather laborious effort. It's, it's really struggling to keep up with the S&P, and it's not really doing a good job. And so you get when we get these pockets of corrections down here and here, the pandemic and then recovery and last year's um, or 2022's decline here, um, you get these rather deep sort of corrections coming in. And we call this actually this pattern, entire pattern is a double zigzag. And it's it's definitely part of uh, a larger expanding flat pattern. So this looks very similar to the way oil is moving up. It's going to make new record highs two or three years down the road. 
but then it's going to be a bull trap and it's going to collapse afterwards. And so this has got a very distinct uh, pattern difference. And it's great actually to do uh, or to analyze the different patterns between, say, the S&P and the, and the Eurostox 50, as such as it is with something like the MSCI Emerging Market Index or something from China like the Shanghai Composite Index, the A-shares. Mm-hmm. They, they are very, very different creatures, but they have a distinct pattern. But these patterns are giving us a directional overlay in the same degree. So in other words, they're synchronized up and down, but the and the performances are slightly different, so they create different patterns. But generally, they're moving up and down, up and down in synchronous form. But because of the amplitudes, they're unfolding into um, slightly different patterns. But the important point is then that, you know, if you're going to get, for example, the S&P dropping down in a deeper correction this year, you should also see it in Europe. You should also see it in a lot of the Asian markets, maybe some of the BRIC countries as well, things like uh, Brazil, Russia, India, which has been a very big, strong market in the last 12 12 months. They should all come down very, very sharply. Um, and um, and that's consistent with them. And then they'll recover again. But the pattern's different. But um, but the uh, synchronization is still very much there. It creates a lot of very tight integrity if that's um, definitely coming through like that. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, when we think about how the how interest rates affect the dollar, are we are you expecting more strength for the dollar this year? As really. You know, you can explain it a couple different ways. Let's say as a a flight to safety out of the markets that are tumbling like this. Well, you, yeah. Normally, you would say, right, okay, we're going to see a flight to safety. Surely that means that if we got a thirty to forty percent drop in in equities, surely we're going to get um, we're going to get uh, the dollar strengthening. But we're not, unfortunately, certainly not. That's not our expectation. And, uh, you know, that is um, quite a significant sort of um, event, because if we take a look at uh, the dollar index um, over the last couple of years. We've seen a very strong um, development up into this high, which was basically uh, September 22. And that ended a very long term uptrend. And we've since in, uh, well, certainly through the back end of 22 into early 23, we saw this five way development down. And a three-wave correction moving up into the October high, September high last year, October. And just recently, we've we've been dropping down from October's high into the end December low here at 162. We're seeing a bit of a counter trend swing up at the moment, but this is very bearish for for for, uh, for the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I foresee that you know this um, this year we're going to see a bit of a short-term rally. Um, this will last only a month or more. And then the dollar's going to collapse, I think. Um, so we're going to, sorry, be looking at this decline in the dollar index um, for the for this year. We're going to get down to something like returning back to these sort of levels around 89 for this year, um, which is really bearish. So the question is, why would why would the dollar decline like that? Um, especially if we're talking about sort of asset prices dropping as well, wouldn't we get a flight to safety? It does make perfect sense. You'd expect so. But I'm just not seeing it. So we've got to look at some other sort of fundamental trigger. Um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, mm-hmm. um, which would which would give us an idea. But we can have an educated guess. I mean, we do know that there's been a huge drive away from uh, what what we call um, de-dollarization, mainly from the BRIC countries, um, because um, I think um, since post-COVID and because of all this um, uh, efforts from uh, Western governments to control the dollar-denominated system, particularly with um, sanctions against Russia, for example, against Russia because of their invasion of Ukraine. Um, these uh, countries like Russia, even Saudi Arabia, have a, a new trade agreement with India to supply oil to India and swap um, um, local currency with them. Um, we can see that in, in China as well. Um, and it seems like that uh, BRIC is a breakaway group to the Western stronghold on on the dollar, and I think you know that may start to to leak as we progress this year, and that might become a bit more of a narrative and uh, weaken the dollar accordingly. But um, 
it's going to be interesting to see that. We can see corresponding currencies like the euro, obviously, um, driving a lot higher. Same as sterling, Canadian dollar also, Aussie dollar, all the commodity currencies start to accelerate higher. But it's not currency strength. It's just purely dollar weakness. We see it right across the G10 um, dollar pairings. And um, so so really, um, we've got to be very alert to a change in narrative and expectations on this. One of the things which, you know, we've seen oil prices dropping down since March 22, but the dollar hasn't really uh, been in um, an uptrend during that time. So there's a bit of discorrelation going on between the normal idea of what the dollar does and, and what that effect has in commodities. The only thing that I tend to look at day to day and maybe a little bit further ahead is how the dollar weakness might affect gold and silver. I think that those precious metals will be the main beneficiaries of a, of dollar weakness. Mm-hmm. And Just uh, as a, so, a comparison, right? Yeah, I think um, I've got quite a few institutional clients and family offices who are long dollars, want to be long dollars. Um, from um, and I've and and I've told them also that look, we've got very big downside risk in the dollar um, for the next um, couple of years, and particularly for this year. Um, if they if they're reluctant to actually if they're reluctant to actually swap out of that dollar based uh, position. Uh, for their investments. And of course, most investments do require you to trade in dollars these days. So you've got no way of circumnavigating that. You can hedge up to a point, but those hedges can expire and leave you leave you still stranded. The best way to augment or hedge that is basically buy precious metals. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm not a big gold bug historically. I just look at gold and silver moving up and down in the same as anything else I look at. Mm-hmm. It's just about wave development and understanding how it develops and the amplitudes. So I don't get over emotional about gold like the gold bugs do, but I still think that gold could, could, you know, go up to 2,800, no doubt. Um, Silver can do 60, $65. And I think platinum and palladium in in my analysis is probably going to outperform those two. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's a good way to hedge. um, You know, if you're, if you're, uh, not to geared up into futures markets and things, you know, just buying uh, precious metals is probably a good hedge against uh, dollar de- dollar de- uh, dollarization. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting. I spoke with a guest yesterday that offered another possible explanation. I think for you know a further dollar decline, and that's just loss of confidence, especially considering that around that same time we're going to get. The election in the U.S. So it's interesting to kind of put those two pieces together and understand that it could be a loss of confidence abroad that's driving less demand for the dollar as well because of, let's say, the outcome or how the election is handled too. Yeah, it could be. It could be something uh, from the election. I mean, um, again, you know, I'm not a great one for politics and uh, a lot of people look at the presidential cycles and things like that. Um, and, um, uh, but, um, I ultimately see, a, a um, yeah, I think the, the dollar lot, of course, loss of confidence can come through with that. And to a certain extent this year, you've seen loss of confidence. Uh, well, certainly since October time, suddenly the dollar suddenly dropped away. To some extent, that's been indicative of the way that yields have pulled a bit lower. Um, but um, no, I don't think that the dollar's got a huge upside this year. Um, I think we're going to be correcting for the next month to the upside and maybe two months if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. And then the, the time scale runs out. I think we're going to get some pretty big declines and maybe it will be a loss of confidence. And maybe people will be thinking forward to the election. Um, but um um, I'm, I'm more thinking in terms of, of really these um, trade routes and coming out of this um, way in which we, we, have to, we have to transact dollars. Don't forget, here in Europe, if we want to, if we want to transact in dollars through a payment system, um, we have to go through the banks. It has to be transferred um, into a middle currency first and then goes into dollars afterwards. And there's always this through fare of dollar a transaction which um we do with pretty much everything 
And I think that um, there's a very, very big push away from that at the moment. Um, there's lots of different ways of alternative payment systems and maybe something which we haven't talked about today, but but maybe cryptocurrencies are going to be, you know, um, driving forward in the longer term, not necessarily over the next few months, because I think they're a bit overbought. But mm-hmm. um, but ultimately, you know, things like Bitcoin will 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 be a, still an attractive investment, alternative investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Peter, let's go back to talking about how this comparative mechanism of the dollar will, let's say, over a couple different timelines, affect the gold and silver and really the precious metal prices in general. Because you're looking at platinum and palladium, obviously, as part of the precious metals complex and the opportunity there as well. Well, I think... um, um... The gold um, price um, is, yeah, I mean, we can we can look at this from different ways, but I think that uh, ultimately, uh, let's have a look at um, uh, gold here. This is, um, back here, this is the last time that gold hit bottom. This is cycle wave four within its um, uptrend, long-term uptrend. And we're moving up in a development of five ways and we've got a target here about 2800 people are talking about 5000 for gold or i mean some even more than that mm-hmm. but i think realistically it's not not really likely um i don't think even with the dollar moving down so so much um certainly from the proportions here i think anything over 2800 would be an excessive uh, move for gold um We've done a lot of ratio relationships and we're working on some now because actually um, we're in the middle of um, doing the analysis for our annual commodity report, um, which we hope to be releasing in a couple of weeks time. So if anybody wants to information on that, let let me know Um, and we'll tell you how to get access to that report. But the um, we're going to show some very long term uh, charts on gold. And the way it um, works with some of the ratios with platinum and palladium and even silver. Uh, the gold-silver ratio suggests that silver is going to be a big outperformer than gold. Um, and if we take a look at that ratio, um, this is the gold-silver ratio. Um, we've had a huge um, devaluation of silver into the pandemic. It was 126.26. That means it um, you had to... It, it took 126 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. So we've got gold divided by silver for this ratio. But since then, we've seen silver outperform gold. So we came down in five price wings here. We've had three price wings up. And the trend is downwards for the next couple of years. So um, basically, with, this, with the ratio narrowing again, that means that silver is going to be a, a big outperformer than gold. Now we've got targets on silver about um, sixty sixty five dollars. I mean, if gold gets to twenty eight hundred, um, let's say we get down to fifty as an interim target during that phase, that means silver will go to fifty six dollars. That's about right. Basis our independent measurements of the pattern. It gets uh, that says silver gets to fifty six dollars minimum. I don't know whether it will will reach 40.42, which is the ultimate uh, downside target in that time span. It's one thing I'm not sure about. But um, if we did go to 40, um, that would mean even higher levels for silver, of course. So I think on a conservative basis, silver, you know, you should be planning $55, $60 over the long term. And um, and I think platinum looks really great. I really like I really like platinum. Um, and um, I'm actually building very big positions at the moment for some of our institutional clients. And uh, um, and uh, platinum, uh, let's have a quick look at that one. Um, I think we I think we're going to look at a very similar function to crude oil, where the long term, the very long term uptrend. Uh, finished here um, at 2300. So that's, again, the financial crisis highs. You had three waves down, just like crude oil. 
into the March pandemic low of 2020. And we're going to have a, an inflation pop um, cycle, which is um, a mini cycle lasting a decade or so. We'll get up to about 3,100. But that means, again, um, we're going to see big outperformance in platinum over silver and over gold. So these are great ways to hedge a dollar, you know, de-dollarization. If the dollar is going to be trending down for the next several years, you know, this is a very good way to circumnavigate that without having to put on elaborate cost-effective hedging at the banks or with your broker where you've got to roll over and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. mm. So it's just so a matter a good, of understanding, again, the timelines, you know, shorter time or let's say nearer to us, you're expecting some pullbacks, but ultimately, of course, a lot of the metals as a comparison just do much better than the underlying currencies that they're priced against. Well, that's right. I mean, obviously, um, it, you, this is a great effective way of, of not being leveraged, really, um, to to uh, protect yourself from from the dollar declines. Mm -hmm. And um, and and precious metals have bottomed already. Um, so um, if you're if you're not leveraged, it's a great way to um, to maintain your long positioning um, there. And um, you don't need to worry about timing too much. Uh, because these will go hand in hand. These movements up will go hand in hand with dollar declines. And uh, I think that will serve its purpose. Um, it's much better to do it this way. And of course, um, you know, we're talking about a dollar devaluation over the very long term of something like 50%, which is a lot. But, you know, if you consider um, this game, if we go from um, 31.12, uh, where are we today? 942. You're talking about us. Yeah, that's, um, well, actually, that's a 60. Oh, that can't be right. Uh, let me do it again. 3112, 942. Yeah, so it's, it's a gain of 230%. So you're more than taking advantage of um, dollar declines. If you've got to hold dollars, and you see a 50% downswing, you're going to make 230% on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in other words, three times your three times your value. Mm -hmm. Peter, as part of the precious metals complex, or let's say as a as a derivative of the precious metals, how do you see the miners doing in that environment where the metals are appreciating greatly over the next couple of years? Well, the gold miners um, outperformed to the upside when we bottomed in 2020, late 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they, I think gold went up something like 20, 30%. And we saw, we saw, you know, well over 100% up in the gold miners. So they should outperform generally. Um, they've done a lot already, whereas in retrospect, um, gold bullion hasn't, you know, it's been obviously locked in a two year sideways trend prior to now. Um, but if we take a look at something like um, Newmont Mining as an example of um, its larger degree uptrend, um, you know, we, we're going to see some very big, strong multiples here. So um, we're currently, what, today around 39.40, let's say 40, and we're going up to 250 as a target. So the miners, again, should really outperform during that phase. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the miners are, are good um, because ultimately, you know, you're going to be benefiting from um, from the fact that um, you're getting obviously much bigger leverage than the underlying bullion. The only thing is now here is that um, is that again you're trading paper currency um, because you're you're basically um, you've got some to say a certain extent you've got some exposure. Uh, of counterparty risk. Um, and I don't say that um, aimlessly because there's always counterparty counterparty risk with a broker. Even the big ones can go financially insolvent. The nice thing about buying precious metals is that you can basically store a value. 
Um, so you can buy it physically. You know, the average person can buy that physically and hold it without having to do rollovers or whatever. Um, but nevertheless, um, I think if you're prepared to take that risk, um, counterparty risk, there's um, it's no problem for you to be able to to buy into the um, uh, the miners themselves. I think there's you know the the precious metal miners look pretty good. Um, even things like um, platinum and palladium, you can buy the ETFs if you're not worried about um, counterparty risk. Then you can buy the ETFs. Mm -hmm. I think palladium, this one which is PALL. Um, which is a good good um, vehicle, and um, and platinum too. Um, so I think platinum is PLA if I if I remember correctly. Um, so uh, check those out because you know they can be they can be good plays on the underlying. But I think the the miners themselves look pretty good generally. Mm -hmm. I like them. I like them a lot. Yeah. Peter, the only other thing I wanted to go over with you is let's say the base metals complex, you know, if we're expecting a kind of a global slowdown here, how does this affect the base metals, you know, iron and copper? Well, I, I actually looked at iron ore today and it looks pretty, it looks pretty strong. I mean, we've come from a low point of uh, around $80 and it's run up really quite nicely now. So iron ore looks as if it's trending up. Um, but when I look at the, um, the base metals, um, there's not a lot to do on the downside because they've been trending down for the last two years, actually. Um, if you go back to sort of May 21, early 22, they've been dropping down like copper. And I've still got a bearish forecast for copper this year. Um, so we can use copper as a as a benchmark. Um, um, let's have a look at the weekly chart here. I've got a target down to about, this is London Metal Exchange. So um, the reason I use that and not COMEX is because sometimes you can get rollover gaps, which um, um, can be rather misleading when you turn term, terms of the measurements of the, the pattern sequences. Mm -hmm. So the London Metal Exchange has this three month rolling contract, which doesn't have any expiry. And um, and uh, the target is 58.70. If you want to put that into COMEX terms, 58.70 divided by 2204.62. So that would come out to about 266 as a downside target. Um, um, so if you're familiar with COMEX, the numbers, that will probably ring true. But I still believe that we can get that one sell off. This particular pattern is what we call an ending diagonal. And uh, it's a five wave process, which is um, necessary into new record highs. This is a, a target up at almost $14,000 a ton. But this year, we need this. We need this sell-off before finishing the fourth wave, so that this particular um, megaphone type of um, expanding diagonal pattern is um, has fulfilled its criteria of um, the widening boundary lines that dictate this pattern. So uh, we do need this sell-off this year. So I think copper looks vulnerable in the shorter term. So for the next several months. But afterwards, again, record highs, you know, like everything else, um, oil comes down to $50, sub 50, copper comes down to here, uh, the CRB comes down, um, and uh, and these uh, industrial um, metals um, really sort of pull lower as we go into a downturn, a dip um, for this year. And then after that, we start to going ballistic to the upside. So, you know, catch those trends, certainly when they begin, mm -hmm. but um, try and deleverage it a little bit this year. Which is also, you know, inflationary. Yes, when when the when the markets have bottomed and they start to turn back higher again, that will be definitely, um, you know, um, putting the inflation score back into the equation again. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's really where, you know, I think inflation is not dead because of the long-term cycles, really. You know, you've got to understand that We've been in the deflation cycle since 1981 to 2020, and um, and uh, and now we're in an inflation cycle. Um, it's just getting our heads around that and getting accustomed to that idea and thinking. But you know, this is where some of the central banks should have been a little bit more prescient of uh, of action because. What, what they did really was they failed to recognize these long-term cycles. And it's amazing, really, because Edward Dewey was a, was a, um, 
He was an economist going back to um, the um, President Hoover period. And um, he was, um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was actually hired by Hoover to find out why the, the Great Depression, why the stock market collapsed. And he was an economist and he got involved in cycles and um, and eventually said, you know, reported his report was basically, yeah, there's a there's a long term cycle that's unfolding there. And that's why the market collapsed. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, later he um, he got so interested in the subject that he he created the foundation for the study of cycles. And um, and started looking at uh, cycles in all sorts of different things, uh, not just stock markets, uh, but lots of different things, human behavior, um, uh, natural phenomena as well, and recognized there was a cycle controlling all of these things. And and really, so you don't need to be some um, um, some um, geeky sort of technical analyst. You know, you can. Even an economist should be understanding what cycles are all about, mm-hmm. uh, just as he did, and appreciate them. The central banks should have really been a little bit more, um, a little bit more sort of um, aware of these cycles, and they could have themselves known that at some stage, you know, we would have seen an inflation liftoff, and that meant probably controlling uh, interest rates a lot better than they did. They were far too late, mm-hmm. um, and. And now they're probably sort of overreaching a little bit towards the end of the cycle in this in this particular phase. Yeah. Excellent, Peter. Well, I think we've covered how all of these different things actually fit together. And then your outlooks for the short, medium and kind of long term here. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap up here today, Peter? Well, I think um, um, if it's if it's OK with you, I'd, I'd just uh, like to say that um, if anybody watching or listening would like to get some information about some of the other work that we do, mm-hmm. um, we're in the middle of publishing our um, annual reports at the moment. It forms a trilogy series, which starts off with stock indices, and then we move on to commodities, which we're doing at the moment. And mm-hmm. and then we'll be publishing currencies and interest rates in early February. Uh, the stock indices um, report is out at the moment. This is what it looks like. And... Um, it accompanies, um, there's 130 pages uh, in here. Um, so it's a very detailed um, look at um, a lot of the forecasts that we've seen today in stock markets. And, um, you know, we go through basically US. We've also got a very interesting section that a lot of people tuning in might want to be an update from. Uh, we've got a technology and the FANGS plus indexes and the MAG7 stocks. Mm-hmm which might be of interest to everybody. So we're looking at through through those. And, and of course, if you click here, um, it'll open up another uh, window, which is a two hour, two hour 50, I think two hour 30 video of me talking through all of these. So um, this is um, part of our, our trilogy series. You can buy these independently, these reports. Um, I think that one, you can get um, an idea from, let's have a look at our website. Um, if you go to wavetrack.com, um, you can actually go to the top right here and you can see that um, it says stock indices video part one should be uh, one of three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's information about how to subscribe to that. And I think um, right at the bottom, uh, there's some details. And I think you can either buy the trilogy package together or you can buy a one off um for those so so that's really interesting i mean obviously if anybody's interested in those um I very much encourage that and the other thing is that we do publish um um a rather sort of a global market report twice a week and uh, this is called the elliott wave compass report and uh if we go to subscriptions here uh the elliott wave compass report is 39 a month you get two reports a week and a login to view them online as well so um these are a couple of ways in which um, yeah, you can keep up to date with us. Yeah. Perfect. And of course, you guys are available on Twitter as well, at Elliot Wave underscore WTI, right? That's right. Yeah, I think um, our Twitter our Twitter feed is, um, yeah, uh, at Elliot Wave underscore WTI. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Yeah. So, um, yeah, please do. We're, we're obviously posting um, when these uh, reports are available on here. And a few other tidbits. So, um, yeah, keep in touch with us. And uh, we'd very much like to 
who, for you to join us and uh, take us through this next journey for this year. Absolutely. Peter, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate getting to getting to get your perspective again here. No, it's great, Tom. Like always, um, really enjoyed our discussion. And um, yeah, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thanks. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.